This is the Straight Dope, episode 11. Lists, bacon, and profits, a.k.a. hay-splaining. I ask a lot of questions on social media, and recently I asked a question that produced a ton of questions, and I'm going to list out some of those and try to explain them, or provide my opinion, which is a deviation from the episodes 1 through 10. So bear with me, and let's see how this goes. Ryan Hay wants to talk bacon, so let's do it. Pig hearts are about the size of human hearts. They're a little bit larger, but I'm not going to get into that kind of minutia. Medical studies often use pig hearts as substitutes for human hearts because they're easier to get. Bacon comes from pigs, too. So let's talk hunting pigs. I'm going to say that the average pig heart or wild hog or boar heart is going to be about six inches. From that, I'm going to say that the kill zone is going to be about eight inches because of the associated vasculature. I know there's bigger. I know there's smaller. I know you can shoot them in the head, lungs, and there are other ways. But I'm talking about streamlining this conversation to get to some sort of a point on how to think about engagements with the point of harvesting bacon. You've got an 8-inch target that you're trying to shoot at. I I emphasized in previous episodes that I think distance determination and caliber determination should be based on your wind number, not necessarily just the group size that you can shoot at, and then projections of a ballistics calculator. So I've got a 3 mile an hour 223 that from all positions I can comfortably say I shoot 2 inches with. I've got a 1.5 craft number, so I'm rounding up to give myself a little more budget. With that 3 mile an hour wind number, At 300 yards, a tenth is a mile an hour budget. So I've got about three mile an hour wind budget at 300 yards to be able to hit an eight inch kill zone on a hog. Now, if I'm missing something, feel free to come and email me at chrisrway at gmail.com or message me on Instagram or Facebook. But this is the way I'm thinking about it. 300 yards, I have a three mile an hour wind budget. I've assessed my wind reading skills and I feel comfortable saying that in most scenarios and terrain that I would be shooting a pig in, I can read the wind to three miles an hour or less inside of 300 yards. So I would feel comfortable hunting a 223 and a hog. Now, an average size hog is going to produce about 16 pounds of bacon. One shot, I'm going to say, costs roughly a dollar. So in order to get my body weight in bacon, it's going to take 12.5 pigs. I'm a little bit over 200 pounds, right? So 13 pigs, it's going to cost me $13.00. And 
a hell of a fun day to get my body weight in bacon. Now, I'm pretty sure that you can't buy 210 pounds of bacon for less than $13. So how's that for profits? Beyond the bacon, I think it's worth emphasizing that knowing your wind budget and knowing your craft number will help you calculate the probability of hitting a target of a designated size at distance. But right now, I feel strongly and am continuously exploring the concept of determining your max distance for 100% based on your wind number combined with your craft number. I don't think that simply reducing the size of your groups, even doubling or cutting it in half, does not double the distance that you can hit a target 100%. And the reason it doesn't double is because of that wind number. Because beyond the wind number's yardage, so you have a wind number of 5 miles an hour, beyond 500 yards, it's less than a tenth per mile an hour, and that causes the cone of deflection to extend outwards rather than stay linear. And the probability of reading the wind to some of the target sizes that we want to shoot at lowers it below 100%. And I don't like playing statistics. I like playing skill. Which leads me to another bullet point on the long list of things that people wanted me to answer. One, tracking points for skill assessment beyond the craft number. I think if you're going to track specific elements of skill development towards any shooting goal, it starts with the craft number. Go to riflecraft.com, log your targets, and start getting feedback on your fundamentals. Associated with that, you need to create a test for yourself that tells you what your wind reading skill level is at. That starts with putting out a target that's at or a little larger than your craft number so that you can see from center where your impact landed on the target relative to your wind call and be authentic with your wind reading tests. After that first shot, you have fundamental feedback. The quote, believe the bullet, is something that came from seeing things like this done. That tells you the actual wind number and you need to write down the difference between your call and the actual bullet impact with respect to your craft number. So craft number, wind reading, I think you need to track build and break times while recreating stages. If you haven't listened to episode 9 and 10, I talk about this. Go to a video and recreate stages Time your splits, building kind of unpracticed build and break positions and stage times, as well as time the deployment of your equipment on the clock so that you know what to do with your equipment. You might say, well, I know how to deploy my bipod. I know how to deploy my tripod. But guess what? Almost every match I've been to, I've watched somebody fumble with their equipment, drop it, push it, bump it, fiddle with it, and waste precious time messing with things that they should have messed with prior. And when you hear interviews 
with people that are high-end performers, that's the stuff that they practice almost more than anything once their skill level in actually pulling the trigger becomes high enough. So track your deployment of equipment, build and break times, your wind reading ability, and your craft number. And I think the sky's the limit. Some quick bullet points and lists of things mentioned. Ballistics and wind. Listen to the episode entitled, A New View of Ballistics. How to stop the wind? Go bowling. Return to simplicity. Seems pretty cool, but people rely on gadgets a lot. We'll talk about that here in a second. Stage breakdowns. Go to the NRL YouTube and watch matches and break down those stages and recreate them. The NRL YouTube channel is an awesome resource for looking at people doing things on the clock without any preparation. All right. Uh, some of these are linked. Let's see. Mental stage prep. I, you know, I don't, I don't really, that's not my thing. Um, for stage prep, I'm a field shooter, and so my particular outlets are more field-related versus NRL and PRS, so I feel like I'm not a credible source for how to mentally prepare for a stage, but I can get interviews lined up with people whose game it is specifically to compete at NRL and PRS, but I feel like I'd be speaking out of turn for that particular thing. I think I have a strong mental game, but... Preparing for a stage, uh, in my opinion, is something that happens before you step up to the stage. But stand by and I'll get an interview going. And in the meantime, go to Eric Cortina's YouTube channel and listen to his interview with Chad Heckler because he talks about that. And he has the credibility of winning the AG Cup uh, you know, and that's just a realm of shooting that I'm not involved with. Until very recently, I haven't had any specific goals that I've been training for other than building a wide base for field event stuff because of the disappearance of Assassin's Way. But the Comp X Grand Slam is an event that was beta tested last year, and it's an invitational I'm trying to get invited to that to compete in. And if I do, my plan will be to win that. And if I do get invited, I'll spend more time discussing the ins and outs of that. But right now, that's the only goal I have. And because I haven't been invited yet, I can't really say uh, much beyond I intend to try to get invited to that. And if I do, I'm going to try to win that. There are a lot of questions about gas guns in field use, field shooting, and other questions that relate to gas guns. I am of the belief that when gas gun wind numbers catch up with bolt guns, they will pass the performance and use in all competitions because side by side, a gas gun has a lot of advantages if you're able to shoot it and maintain it in the field. Because there are moving parts, you have to maintain them more than a bolt gun. On the other hand, the advantages that you gain with a gas gun in the field, like the ability to take fast follow-up shots, the ability to maintain a position without moving the bolt, 
the ability to have a lighter, more maneuverable rifle with many more rounds in it provides capability that you really can't match with a bolt gun. Somebody said, how about a 16-pound gun shooting all four positions sub 10 seconds? And I think the only way to do that safely and accurately would be to do it with a gas gun. Some people mention that the moving parts and the moving mass make a bolt gun less able to shoot accurately and precisely. And all of my testing with my Cobalt Kinetics and my Daniel Defense gas guns say 100% otherwise. I can shoot craft numbers around a 1 with those gas guns. Now, the only difference is that the wind number is much less because of the BC and velocities of the calibers that these rifles are. As soon as they catch up, there will not be a comparison. Gas guns will own the world. In field shooting, there are a lot of elements logistically that you need to think about in addition to what you normally see at a standard competition. And that largely settles down on your field skills, your familiarity with your equipment, and the ability to deploy and then re-secure your equipment into your kit to be able to move again. Fitness is one thing that's neglected in competitions outside of the field element as well as being able to comfortably carry and manage your equipment. The weight issue is pretty much neutralized, and the ammunition is contained within the magazines. Let's say you have a 30-round magazine. You carry a few of those, and you don't have to mess with ammo carriers and 10- or 12-round magazines. You've got them kind of centralized and located in a spot on your kit, that makes them much easier to manage than bolt gun ammo and having to reload do that. Now, I tested the um, polymer ammunition, and the test that I ran, I put on the YouTube channel, and I just found that the accuracy was wanting and the standard deviations were two to three times higher than competition ammo. And so the weight savings... For a normal person carrying a loadout of a few magazines is in the ounces versus the pounds of carrying hundreds, potentially thousands of rounds in a pack for, you know, time and time and time. I think that weight savings for an individual like you and I are not seen in something like that. I think weight savings is an issue of the parts that you're carrying and reducing the amount of equipment you need to be effective in the field. So to circle back to gas guns and field use, I think you need to be able to utilize your sling as a substitute for what a PRS or competition shooter would use for a rifle bag. Using a bipod is fine because it's nice to have a little kickstand, but creative and effective use of a sling is a skill that we don't see very often but in the field it's not uncommon to find things to help stabilize our rifles and a sling can be an effective tool beyond carry and simple offhand shooting Um, that's more of a video concept but the better you get 
at reducing your reliance on equipment, the more effective you are in the field, such that it's almost the polar opposite of many of the competitions now where you need to add weight, you need to add speed, you need to add multiple bags and tripods. Uh, Field effectiveness means reducing that reliance, even if you get a small increase in your craft numbers. But I don't see that in my testing. So I think that gas guns and field use means being honest with your craft number and practicing the use of minimal equipment. And what I would suggest is get a good sling and practice creative applications of sling use on trees, bushes, offhand, shooting your pack, and try to get away with one very small, light, get light bag if you have to, but otherwise, try to come up with ways that you can shoot that off of natural terrain accurately. My guess is a good gas gun shooter will shoot as well with a gas gun as a bolt gun. I feel like I do, and I feel like I could shoot anything as well with a gas gun as a bolt gun. The only limitation is the wind number, and that's catching up with technology and rifle builds right now. Another question was the my opinions on the best bolt gun, and, and that's not a question that I can really answer, but I can say that technology is starting to reduce the reliance on a gunsmith for some of the parts that we use. And although people argue against prefits, they argue against uh, other small components, putting the power into the consumer's hand for buying parts and putting their rifles together is the direction that the industry is moving. Whether that's happening fast or not is to be seen, but I really like the move of um, people to uh, have prefits and have field expedient ability to swap barrels. Uh, pretty soon I'll be testing out the, the Zeus, the Terminus Zeus action, and seeing how that compares to the Accuracy International actions for field swapping of barrels. And in my limited testing with the AIs, uh, you know, I think that there is a huge advantage to being able to do that on your own without a barrel vise. And I would like to see the technology such that we were able to manage and maintain our rifles in the field quickly with limited tools. Um, the companies that innovate into that area, I think personally, are going to be the ones that shape the future of bolt gunning. Another one that was a common question on this list of bacon profits and hay-splaining things was dealing with mental burnout and loss of drive. I think that answer is pretty easy. If you suffer from mental exhaustion and burnout, you're pursuing the wrong goals. You're pursuing goals for a reason that's external to you, and if you find something that's internally motivating, you just simply won't burn out. That's how I manage to be motivated about everything, and I think that it would be impossible to deter me from my motivations 
in, in that capacity because I just don't listen to the masses about what I should pursue. I pursue my particular interests and have never, never suffered that type of burnout or loss of drive. Although, um, I also don't have a specific outlet within shooting that my particular interests and drive, uh, overlaps with all that much. So what I lack in burnout, I also lack in outlets. And, and, and so that has its own set of problems. But I think if you don't compromise your principles, you won't burn out. So earlier I mentioned a question on the return to simplicity and how do we go back to more analog. And while I don't think that's necessarily the greatest thing, I think they are skills that we need to develop and hash out because our reliance on technology creates problems and training in an analog context opens eyes to the effectiveness of technology. And I think right now, a lot of the technology has kind of outrun the effectiveness of the consumer in the field. And I mentioned that when comparing binoculars with applied ballistics and all sorts of capabilities, you need too many gadgets to utilize them. And when you utilize them, you lose the effectiveness of time. And that's the problem that I see with some of the technology now. It's not that it doesn't do what it says it's going to do, but then you say, okay, well then how would I use this under the clock? And let's, let's think about this out loud for a second because I'm doing it kind of on the fly. If you have binoculars that tell you your target distance and your holds, wind, elevation, but you have multiple targets. You have two options. One of them, well, you have more than that, but, but you know, realistically, you have two options. Shoot that target and then transition to the next one. Shoot that target, transition to the next one. Shoot that target, transition to the next one. And that's very slow. It also keeps you focused without having peripheral vision. The other technique is to find all your targets, range them, create kind of a, a range map in your mind or on paper and shoot them all. I would argue that that is much faster, but you can't do that unless you have something like a Garmin watch or some sort of a heads up display that provides you with that information. And time is always going to be a factor in this stuff because you take one shot and you've given up your position. You take one shot and animals start to move. You take a shot, the clock's already started. And so there really aren't scenarios where after that first shot, you have the luxury of locate, range, engage, transition, locate, range, engage, transition uh, without talking about time. And that's where the rapid target engagement techniques come in. And right now our technology, at least on the civilian side, makes it very difficult in a time context to do all that. But people are spending boatloads of money on these capabilities without an outlet that makes those an ideal function. What I'm saying is the current competitive outlets, the current hunting outlets, and, and other applications that people might be able to use these things, um, they're not ideal for. 
So you've got to either create a scenario or an outlet that matches the capability of this technology, or companies need to listen to the consumers and create things that bridge the gap between their intended use and doing their intended use easier or more effective. And it seems like people and companies are kind of headed in different directions. And I think that's a curious uh, phenomena that's happening now in shooting where we've got great technology and lots of diverse styles of competition, but the technology and the competition aren't necessarily overlapping or competition is driven by useless pieces of equipment and it makes people frustrated with that. And a ton of input on these lists are simply focused on changing match, match formats and creating outlets that are more fun and more engaging. And I can't help with that either. I run a match here and I'm trying to do some stuff locally, but people vote with their wallets. And so the more time you spend doing something that you don't like with the money that you've earned, the more you're reinforcing that those things stick around. And that's all I can say about that. But if we speak out to companies and say, we need the capability to do X, Y, and Z, be innovative in that department, then we won't be trying to come up with ways to create uh, a field of performance to prove someone else's equipment because they should be doing that on their own. I think that disconnect is something that needs to be dealt with as a community as a whole. But vote with your wallets and create the outlets that you want, regardless of whether it's popular or not. Not only will you not burn out, but it'll create venues and opportunities for you to do the things that you actually like versus just kind of spending money on things that you don't like or don't understand how to use effectively. Next point, breaking plateaus. I don't if you are motivated and you're tracking the craft number, win number, build and break times, deployment of a quick of equipment, you won't you won't have a plateau. Um, if you get a plateau, you're training and assessing the wrong thing. And so you need to reassess your training goals and you need to reassess the things that you're measuring on. But really in almost anything that you do, if you have a plateau because you didn't quite understand the goals that you were pursuing and how you need to bridge the gap between where you are and where you want to be. Uh, building a bag loadout, I think that's pretty straightforward. You make accessible the things that have the highest priority. That doesn't always necessarily mean the highest use, but um, you know, put things where you need them in a way that you can access them in order of priority. You don't need your lunch right on the very top. You right, you want to be able to grab a tourniquet from anywhere immediately. Even though you're not going to grab a tourniquet all the time, you don't want to be digging through your rifle if you only have 10 seconds to get it on and stop the bleeding. On the other hand, you don't want to create a gypsy camp if you need to reload your magazine and you only have a 10-round magazine. So you need to keep your ammo on top. You need to keep your binoculars on top and need to stow all of the weight in your bag as close, closest to the center of mass of your body so that you expend the least amount of energy. And some people do that by 
putting the weight high center, and some people do it by putting it close to your back. Kind of depends on the dimensions of your pack and how much gear you're actually carrying. Um, so it depends on the bag that you're utilizing. One question just says chairs, question mark. I'm not sure what that means. Why are team matches better than other matches? Well, while I totally agree with that, um, I think it's because, historically speaking, team matches involve and employ a much broader set of skills, which include communication and camaraderie than, than other matches. So uh, sniper and field matches often require teams to go out and do things together and those teams are able to cover ground land navigate and you see the challenge of communication arising and that challenge of communication is something that every one of us has to deal with in everyday life and so the idea of working on and honing communication skills and relaying specific information with a desired result is actually harder than it sounds which makes some field and team matches very difficult, but also very fun because you're out there and you're forging friendships and that camaraderie, even with its, even with other teams, um, team matches that, that I've been to, other teams are encouraging each other on and egging each other towards that friendly competition. And so, uh, you know, my opinion is that team matches are greater than all because they employ broad set of skills and you can have different skill sets for each partner that come together and produce an overall effective performance but also uh, it just makes it fun and we're a pack animal and pack animals need need the pack and, and, and we suffer without friendship and bonds of doing things with the people that we're close to and we also get to know each other interacting in ways to see how creative people are and how they solve problems. And you get to see that in team matches. You don't get to see that so much one-on-one uh, -on -one style matches. At least that's, that's my opinion. So to circle back to bacon, because really bacon tastes really good and it's fun to talk about. If you were going to go shoot and harvest bacon, how much would it cost you and what's your max effective range considering your knowledge of wind reading ability. I want you and I challenge you to figure out your craft number, your wind reading budget, and then try to fit that into an eight inch circle and tell me what your effective distance is based on your craft number and your ability to read the wind. And um, my guess is it's gonna fall inside of 300 yards but I would love to hear the answers that you come up with based on your craft number and if you don't want to calculate your craft number if you go to riflecraft.com we've we've recently done a big update and it gives you your shooter bracket so your shooter bracket in inches you could calculate that out with your wind budget and determine what distance you'll fit into that eight inch target size and I think you'll be surprised, and I think it'll give you some insight to things that you might need to tr train. And then ask yourself, how fast could you 
build and break with all of your stuff in your pack if you happen to see a pig, could you get it out and get a shot off quickly? The challenge of taking a 16-pound gun and getting all four positions sub 10 seconds right now, having not tried it, seems nearly impossible to do that and maintain your current craft number, but I'm going to go test that out. And I think the only way to do that is with a gas gun. I think that a gas gun has absolutely the effectiveness of a bolt gun minus the wind number. I can drive my gas gun as good as a bolt gun. The only reason I wouldn't do it at distance is that the wind number of the calibers I'm shooting is lower than the wind number of the bolt guns I'm shooting, and that drives hit percentage down past the yardage of the number, which um, if it wasn't, I would only be shooting a gas gun. Anyway, if you like this, share it. If you want to help support it, go to riflecraft.com and get a subscription. Not only do you get added features and added analytics, but you also support this podcast and the growth of that website and the community associated with it. If you don't want to spend what would essentially equate to a couple drinks a month, then share it with your friends, uh, post about it, and do what you can to help grow the community in a word-of-mouth style, and keep listening. If you don't like this and, and um, this wasn't your thing, thanks for listening.